I'm pretty sure that we've all done it, sent messages, texts to people, family, friends, people we may barely know. And sometimes they read them and then they never reply. They never respond to you. You can look in your phone and you can see red. This happened to me on Friday. I sent a text to a very good friend that I've known for the majority of my life. I know that on Friday morning he read it at 11.01. And, and, if you're watching online, I have a poem to pick with you. Hurry up and get this sorted out. But we have this sort of thing. People, they just leave things on read. They read it, but they did nothing about it. They didn't respond. They didn't reply. Nothing changed. Nada. You're just left hanging there. This summer, we've been reading through and are working our way through the 13 letters that the Apostle Paul, a follower of Jesus, wrote to friends and to churches that he'd helped pastor and launch. And I wonder as we read them, did they just read and go, hmm? Or did they respond too? Did they leave his letters unread and didn't ever reply to them? Hard to say. We don't know that. The letters have been handed down to us, so somebody must have been doing something with them. But it becomes part of our reality. And today we're in the book or the letter to the Ephesians, one of Paul's favorite places to go and to visit and to spend time with. Actually, in verse 1, not every old manuscript says Ephesians on it, which leads some people to conclude maybe it was a circular letter to towns right about, kind of if maybe he'd written a letter to us, but we thought, well, maybe we should share it in Okotoks or Chestermere or something like that. A few different people were reading it. Maybe it was our way of doing it. We'd write a blog post or make an a online podcast that someone could tune into and a bunch of other people other than the intended recipients could get there. But regardless, here we are, we get this book of Ephesians, which is an amazing letter that Paul wrote. It's filled with grandeur and these beautiful pictures of who God is and who Jesus is. And sometimes the language is a little complicated too. So let me read a portion of chapter one to you so you get an idea of Paul's style of writing this letter. Beginning at verse three, we read these words, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgivenesses of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he's made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth. In Christ, we've also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. They're magnificent words. They're amazing words. And also very complicated too. Hard to understand at times. In fact, that whole thing that I read to you in Greek, the original language, is one long sentence. It is the single longest sentence that has ever been found in an ancient Greek manuscript in the Bible or anywhere else. 
And one scholar of ancient manuscripts wrote this about it. He said, it is the most monstrous sentence conglomeration I have ever met in the Greek language. That's nice, isn't it? But no wonder the Bible is hard to read at times when you have giant sentences like this. But even though it's complex, even though it can be challenging, the big themes in a letter like this are not that hard for us to figure out. It's all about Jesus. And Paul begins to talk about us being in Christ, our relationship with him. In Christ, we have died and we will rise again. In Christ, we are exalted to the highest places. In Christ, the Holy Spirit is bestowed upon us. It's a phrase that he continually uses and repeats. He talks about in Christ, we're reconciled, not just to each other, but he gets all cosmic at one point and talks about being reconciled to the whole of creation. Jesus is making everything brand new and reconciling everything and everyone together. And that means that he's doing something kind of corporate, not like big oil or gas, but corporate as in he's making a new community. And Ephesians is very much about being God's community, not simply individuals or persons who respond to Jesus and know Jesus, though that matters, But it's about God building a community, about God making a brand new society. And that's hard for us because we live in a very individualistic world to think that the community, the society, seems to be the most significant thing in this letter. But God's up to something. And the shape of this society is what marks us and displays God's glory. God's society, his new humanity, are called the family of God. We're described as being the body of Christ, the Son of God. We become the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. It's amazing what God is up to. And in this community, we celebrate life rather than fear death. We live in unity rather than being pulled apart by divisions. We live together as people who love rather than hate, as people who display God's goodness and righteousness rather than wickedness and evil, as people who stand for what's right rather than compromising with what's wrong. But sometimes that gets a little challenging. We all know it. Sometimes it's as though we put on some headphones so we don't have to hear We don't have to listen to the cries and brokenness of our world about us. We get tired of listening of wars and hardship, and so we drown it out. We put on our headphones. Or maybe it's people we get tired of listening to, and we drown out their voices too. Or perhaps it's sometimes just God. We don't want to hear anymore, and we leave him left unread. One of my great delights in the role that I have at FEC is to mentor some of our younger pastors and staff members and to come alongside them in their journey as they explore and discover more of the gifting that God has given to them. And this weekend, I'm delighted that Pastor Rosalind is sharing God's word with us and going to open up and guide us through this book of Ephesians, which is one of the most remarkable things that Paul ever wrote and one of the most remarkable pieces of scripture in her Bible. But before she does that, I want you to watch this and think about how much Is this me? Is this you? Down on you, 
It's a heavy world It's too much for me to care If I close my eyes It's not there with my headphones on With my headphones on With my headphones on With my headphones on
Good morning. My name is Rosalind. I'm one of the pastors here at FAC, and it's my joy and privilege to be here this morning talking about one of my favorite books in the New Testament, Ephesians. But before we get started, I thought I would share a, I don't know, funny story that, my, that happened to me on Friday when I was asking our five-year-old son to please pray for me uh, as I preached this weekend. And I said, Theo, could you just pray that the message would go well and it would be meaningful for people? And he looked at me and he said, Mom, I'm not God. I can't do miracles. So, so we're hoping for a miracle this morning. I'm hoping this is helpful. Uh, but as we dive in, how many of you have heard the term main character energy? Okay, James has because he's heard the sermon a hundred times. Anybody else? Okay. So if you've heard of main character energy, my guess is that you have TikTok, Instagram, and now threads downloaded on your phone. And if you haven't, well, your screen time report is probably less embarrassing than mine. Either way, if you Google main character energy, you will find this definition. Main character energy is when someone puts themselves first and takes control of their narrative, experts say. Not in a selfish way, but in a self-affirming way that prioritizes self-care. As long as it's not taken to extremes, it's perfectly healthy to look at life through this lens. So a few weeks ago, I spoke to one of our staff members, Paulo, and he has a business that specializes in understanding Gen Z. So he has become an expert on main character energy. He told me that it started becoming a thing in the early 2000s when you would see a movie and the main character would clearly be defined. I think we can probably all picture that scene in a movie where there's someone in a high school hallway, they put on their headphones and suddenly you hear the music in their head as if you are now the main character. We just saw what that looks like. So the main character energy stems from this. The only thing that affects the main character is what happens to them. According to the research that Paulo and his team have done, turning inwards and having main character energy is one of the more significant responses that Gen Z has to stressors in life. As news becomes more prevalent, it can feel more and more overwhelming to have to care about everything. And so instead, we turn inwards, we numb out, we put on our headphones, and we choose to be the main character. Main character energy is where sentences like, I'm doing me right now, or if it doesn't serve me, I don't need it in my life, come from. Now, if you've never said either of those seemingly self-centered sentences, you might be starting to relax into your chair and thinking that this sermon is going to have nothing to do with you. But one thing that millennials and Gen Zers are really good at is a rebrand. They've taken messy hair and called it effortless. They've taken saying no to creating healthy boundaries. And they've taken a self-centered and self-focused approach to life and called it main character energy. So, you might have main character energy if you've ever said something like, I can't believe that person just cut me off in traffic. Anybody this morning? No? <laughs> I didn't like any of the songs at church this morning. I wish they'd play songs I actually knew. Okay, some more people this morning. All right. Why did that person get a promotion? I work just as hard as them. Nobody ever notices me. I can't deal with all this bad news I'm hearing. I'm just going to listen to my podcast. All of us have a tendency to make ourselves the main character in our lives. It's easy to do, and the culture around us doesn't help. When life gets tough or the outside world makes you feel helpless and hopeless, it's all too easy to turn inwards and focus on what we can control, which is usually ourselves. So we become the main character, and we focus on creating a life that centers around us, 
rather than expending the energy to look outwards and take in the world around us. But what if we were never meant to be the main character? What if instead we have been invited to be a supporting character? As we dive into the book of Ephesians, my prayer is that we will discover the hope that we have been called to and come to understand the beautiful identity that we have in Christ. And while the book of Ephesians may have been written 2,000 years ago, I think we'll find it's incredibly relevant to us today. It was countercultural then, and it's countercultural now. But let's pray. before we go too far, let's pray. Father, we thank you that we get to gather this morning. We thank you for the way that you are moving in your church. And we just pray, Lord, that this morning would be all about you. I pray that these would be your words and your message. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak individually to your body. Thank you the way that you do that. Thank you that you are here and we just uh, want you to have your way. We love you, Jesus, and in your name we pray. Amen. So let's start by looking at the person of Paul and the circumstances he found himself in when he wrote Ephesians. Ephesians is known as a prison epistle, which means he wrote this letter from prison. The circumstances he was in were less than ideal. He was not sitting under a fig tree with the breeze drifting by slowly as he crafted poetic words. No, he was in prison, probably cold, beaten up, malnourished, damp, and worst of all, for anyone who's ever tried to take a selfie, probably had terrible lighting. It would have been incredibly easy for Paul to go into victim mode and take the opportunity to write about the injustices he was facing. He could have asked for help, but instead, he took the opportunity to take his eyes off of himself and onto Christ, and he used his words to encourage and spur on the faith of believers back then, and it continues to shape us today. So let's look at how he starts the letter. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Can you imagine being in prison, like I said, damp, beaten up, and starting a letter with grace and peace to you? Seriously, can you imagine that? If I put myself in Paul's shoes, I think my letter would start with H-E-L-P, get me out of here. But instead, he fixes his eyes on Jesus, and he considers himself blessed because of him. And because he was able to do that, we have this beautiful letter that encouraged and challenged the church back then, and it continues to shape us today. So you might be asking, how was Paul able to keep his gaze so firmly fixed on Jesus that even being thrown in prison didn't shake him? Well, here's the good news. It actually had very little to do with Paul's strength as an individual. Let's look again at how he started his letter. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, you can only say from somewhere if you've been there. Paul had been with God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. His life was so hidden with Christ that he was able to be a vessel for Christ's holy presence in the world. And because of this, Paul had an amazing understanding of who God is and the power that was available to him as a member of his body. He had a deep knowledge of who God was in relation to him and his circumstances. Let's read through his prayer in Ephesians 1, which, as we read it, remember, he wrote this while he was in prison. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. 
That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Paul knew Jesus so intimately that even while in a prison cell, he could talk about hope. He acknowledged the amazing power and authority of God because he'd been there. He knew God and he was able to find rest in that. Even in the most uncomfortable and unjust circumstances of his life, Paul had peace and hope. So what would that look like for us? To be so sure of who God is and the power and authority that he has over our circumstances that we could truly trust him with our lives. This is not to say that we stuff down our feelings when we are scared or discouraged or heartbroken. Sometimes life is really hard. Paul knew that. He was in prison. It is okay to grieve and be sad. I'm sure he was grieving and I'm sure he was sad. Paul even acknowledges that feelings are important in Romans earlier when he says rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Feelings are okay. We don't have to be scared of them. I'm not suggesting a toxic positivity approach to life. But we do have to remember that our feelings are not everything and that way we feel is not our identity. Catch that. The way we feel is not who we are. As believers, our identity is secure. And in this letter, Paul reminds us of that. He says, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven derives its name. Friends, we are a part of God's family. When we base our identity on things that fluctuate like circumstances or like jobs or relationships, or feelings, we are putting a weight on those things that they are not meant to carry. Our identity as believers in Jesus is meant to be a part of the body. The only thing that does not change is God and his love for us. And so by rooting ourselves so firmly in him, we establish an identity that is not easily shaken. I love how Paul puts this in Ephesians 4 as he talks about the importance of unity as believers as it relates to our identity. Let's read it. Therefore, or then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. We need to understand that our identity is as a body of believers in Christ Jesus, not as individuals. This is not to say that God does not love you and know you personally and intimately. But we cannot individually experience the fullness of God's love on our own. We need to be in community to truly see and appreciate his hand at work in our lives and the depths of his love. How many of you have heard the term imposter syndrome? Okay, so more than main character energy, that's good. Basically, it's that feeling that you're not good enough and that no one's figured it out yet. You keep waiting for people to discover that you're not really who who they think you are, and you feel like an imposter, hence the name. Often we have feelings of imposter syndrome when we are in places that we don't feel qualified to be in. 
I've had feelings of imposter syndrome countless times. And when I talked to my therapist about these feelings, she told me that I had to look within, that I should find my self-confidence from within myself. I understood her sentiment that we can't compare ourselves to each other and that we need to be secure in ourselves. But as I went home and thought about it, I realized that looking within is exactly what I'd been doing wrong. Looking within and examining everything I have to offer is actually what led me to this point of disillusionment with myself. When we focus solely on ourselves and what we individually have to offer, we face the inevitable truth. We are not good enough on our own. I'm convinced the only way to battle imposter syndrome is to lay down our role as main character and our self-focused approach to life and embrace the life of a supporting character with Jesus at the center. So who has Jesus made us to be? When we look at Ephesians 1, Paul outlines it for us beautifully. Praise be to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. In him, we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. We are blessed, chosen, blameless, loved, adopted, redeemed, and forgiven. Do you believe that about yourself? Okay, that was underwhelming. <laughs> Do you believe that you're blessed? Okay, do you believe that you have been chosen? Do you know that you are blameless? Can you comprehend that he loves you so much that he adopted you into his family? Can you accept that he has redeemed you and forgiven you? Friends, these are not conditional statements or opinions. These adjectives are not hanging on a behavior you will or won't do. These are true facts about who we are as the body of Christ. We have to look outside of ourselves to discover the secure identity that we were designed to have. I don't mean we need to compare ourselves to others, but instead, can we rest in the assurance that we are totally loved by God and created to have a unique function in the body of Christ? Can we learn to celebrate our differences and embrace when someone is better at something than you are because it benefits the body as a whole? Paul talks about our role as members of the body over and over again in Ephesians 4, but he very succinctly says it in 1 Corinthians 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all of its parts form one body, and so it is with Christ. God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Being a part of the unified body mattered to Paul because it matters to God. When we tune out the world around us, whether it's through headphones or schedules or substances or whatever it is, we are entering into a world where we are the main character and we cut ourselves off from the joy of being part of the rest of the body. But being a part of the body does cost us and it doesn't always feel good. So let's make this literal for a moment. Imagine that you are the foot in the body of Christ. Go with me. You smell, you get walked on, you feel like you're carrying the load for everyone else, and on Sundays, you have to squeeze yourself into a pointed toe shoe because it looks nice with the rest of the outfit. The ladies understand. 
And yet without you, it would be a lot more challenging to get around. You are the one that can carry us down the path that God has for us. If the foot solely, that was pun intended, focused on itself, it would be easy to give up because it wouldn't understand its purpose. A foot without a body is just a foot, but attached to the body, it's the part that makes a lot of movement possible. So now let's take the metaphor out of it. You are an incredibly important member of the body of Christ. And maybe you have tried to do life in community and you've been burned. You felt walked on and you felt like you're carrying too heavy of a load. And so you've turned inward. You've made yourself the main character. And if that's you, I'm sorry. That hurt is really valid and it's not okay. I think we can all acknowledge that the main character energy or turning inwards is not a response to a great external world. It's a response to stress and an overwhelming sense of helplessness and hopelessness. And I think if we're honest, it's very likely a response to not feeling cared for by the rest of the body. Let's go back to the foot metaphor one more time. Most of us can relate to being surprised by how debilitating it can be when you hurt your foot. You stub your toe, you sit down, you elevate it, you bandage it, you do what you need to do because you know you're not moving forward until you have healed that foot. Church, if we're not regularly checking in with other members of the body of Christ, praying for each other and making sure we're not carrying too heavy of a load, we are contributing to burnout and main character energy in the church. So if you've turned inwards because of this, I see you and I get it. The world around us does feel really overwhelming. There is so much access to national and global crisis information, and our friends and our family have a lot of access to us. It can feel really overwhelming to always have to answer the call or take the text. I get it. But what if the solution to these feelings of hopelessness and helplessness is not found in taking our eyes off of the problem and onto ourselves, but rather fixing our eyes onto Jesus and seeing the problems through his eyes as his body. I want us to look again at that definition of main character energy from the beginning. Specifically the last line when it says, it's perfectly healthy to look at life through this lens. Culture today would suggest it's actually positive to, look at the, to use the lens of self to look at the world. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know that when we do this, we're actually not really experiencing the depth of life we've been invited to experience. When we look at culture through the lens of self, when we numb out, we lose the richness and the joy of what it is to do life together in community as believers, part of one body with Christ as our head. So what does that life look like? Ephesians 2.5 says that God made us alive with Christ. Many other translations will say together with Christ. And I want us to first notice that it said us. We were made alive with Christ as a body. And the most amazing part of it is together. We have been made alive together with Christ. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us if we are a part of his body. When Christ was raised from the dead, it was not just his head. It was his whole body. When he triumphed over the grave, defeating death, he made it possible for us to have his Holy Spirit poured out into his people, his body. And that spirit, that power is available to us today. Look at this beautiful prayer in Ephesians 3 as Paul prays for the body of Christ. 
I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Or through, yeah, through faith. <laughs> and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Look at those words, that you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to begin to comprehend the depth and power of, and fullness of his love we must be in community as his unified body. And how amazing does a life that is so firm in Christ's love that we are filled to the measure of all the fullness of God sound? For us to truly embrace the lens of Christ with which to view the world, it means we need to lay down the lens of self. I love how one biblical commentator puts it. An understanding of God's work is always an attack on the ego. Not to obliterate or humiliate the self, but to bring it into relationship with God and to redirect its, its interests. This is exactly what Paul did and what we've been invited to do to lay down our perspectives and abilities and focus on the incredible power we have because of Jesus and the identity that he has given us as members of his body. There is so much goodness in Ephesians. I wish we had time to go through all of it, but it is only six chapters, so read it today. I believe in you. You can do it. I want to wrap up with the last chapter. It's the famously known armor of God. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Many theologians will say that Paul is intentionally using military language here. And let's not forget, he was in prison, being guarded by military. One commentary I read said that he employs military terminology to describe the nature of the Christian life as a life of conflict. By including the armor of God in Ephesians, Paul is acknowledging that in life we will face conflict, but that we have hope because God has given us the armor and the weapons to combat whatever comes our way and an army to go into battle with. One thing I want us to pay special attention to, though, as we read through the armor of God, is that no one goes into battle alone. You will never see a commanding officer giving orders to one soldier. The orders they give are directed to a group of soldiers prepared for battle. Friends, we are not meant to face life alone. And if you don't believe me, I have proof. Let's look through the armor again. We have the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the belt of truth, the, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, and the sword of the spirit. But it's missing one thing. Does anyone know what that is? It's missing pants. <laughs> and why is it missing pants? Because we are supposed to cover each other's butts. <laughs> okay, I wasn't sure how that'd go over on Sunday morning. <laughs> but seriously, whose back are you covering and who's covering your back? When life is really hard, and Paul reminds us that it will be, 
Do you have brothers and sisters in Christ to turn to? Yeah, all right. Okay, we're being serious right now. <laughs> but are you available to go into battle with others when life is hard for them? Are you praying for your fellow believers? Are you seeking God together in community? Friends, the only thing harder than going into battle is going into battle alone. If we want to live out our identity as chosen, adopted, blameless, blessed, redeemed, and forgiven members of the body of Christ, we need to be together. Sisters and brothers, we have not been called to live a life that centers on ourselves, and that is a good thing. When we lay down our role of the main character and embrace the role of a supporting character, we discover the power and fullness that is available to us because of Jesus. If you invite Jesus to be the main character of your life, you will discover the joy that it is to be a part of his mission. You will find yourself rejoicing when others around you do well and praising God for the way he equips his people for his purposes. You will experience the incredible intimate love that Jesus has for you as you live out the life you've been called to. What would it look like for you to take your eyes off of yourself and onto Jesus? Is there something that you feel like your eyes are being drawn to? What facet of your identity would be the most painful for you to lose? And what if losing it didn't have to ruin you? What would it be like for us to have our identity so completely secure that nothing can shake it? Church, can you give the world grace and peace from the prisons of your life because you know what it is to be with God at the beginning, I talked about main character energy and how we view ourselves that way all too often. I think Ephesians challenges us to examine ourselves. Have we been trying to write our own story, thinking that we're the main character? And maybe it's time to surrender and let God write the plot line. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the author of life. We thank you that you are so much wiser and stronger than we ever could be on our own. And we thank you that you have invited us to be a part of your family. We thank you that you have chosen us. You have redeemed us. God, what a mystery and a gift it is that we get to be blameless in your sight. And I pray for those in the room or watching online that maybe don't believe that about themselves. They've said yes to you, but they don't really think that you have redeemed them and forgiven them. Holy Spirit, would you speak to their hearts in a way that only you can? And would you unify your body? We are your people, Father. We want to do what you want to do. We want to be together for your glory, God. And thank you that it is so fun to be in your will. Thank you that it is so amazing to be with you. And God, I do pray for the times when it isn't fun. I pray that you would help us to be a body that's sensitive to each other that cries when, it, when we need to have tears, and that rejoices when it's time to rejoice. God, this is work only you can do, and so we're asking you to do it. Make us a unified body so that others would see you when they look at us. Thank you, Father, for this day, and we love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.